you have hello you have basically what what every prosecutor dreams of you've got witness. murder witness murder weapon yeah. you've got placement at the scene of the crime you've got means that's a slam dunk conviction right there he's holding the murder weapon dripping with blood over the body one way in one way out this is as clear as you will get yeah, right. for a conviction. If you were there while you stabbed. Except if you were there while you stabbed. Yeah. And that's the difference. So in halacha, that is not good enough. That's considered conjecture or circumstantial evidence. You're inferring that something happened when you don't know. And there's actually a story. Rabbi Shem Shatach says as an oath, I will not see consolation in Israel if I did not once see a person pursue another into a ruin. I pursued him, and I saw a sword in his hand dripping with blood. And the one who was ultimately killed was convulsing. And I said to him, Wicked person, who has killed this man? Either you or I. But what can I do, since your blood is not given over to me? As the Torah states, At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is put to die be put to death. And I did not witness you killing him. The one who knows one's thoughts shall punish this man who killed another. The sages said they did not move from there before a snake came, bit the murderer, and he died. So, first we have an incredibly strict standard of evidence. Two witnesses, nothing else. And the two witnesses have to witness the act directly. It's not enough that they were in the area, that, that there's no other way for it to have occurred. You have to see it directly. And there has to be two. That's almost impossible. Exactly. So what this leads you to is a question, which is, what about all the murderers? What about all the people that are going to get away with it? Because most people are careful not to leave two witnesses, you know? Correct. So, there is an assumption here as a response that Hashem will take care of it. God will punish the person who, who committed the murder. And that's kind of what Shema says. But on top of that, there is a workaround, which is that a king has the ability to put people to death, essentially at a whim. And his job is to ascertain, to ensure that, that there aren't murderers running about free. So he steps in when the strict halacha does not include the ability to put someone to death. But either way, in terms of ancient societies, witness testimony was pretty much all you had. There was no modern forms of forensics so far, pretty much. So witness testimony was the only one. However, this strict, uh, uh, this strict level of testimony, which is it can't be based on conjecture, and it has to be two witnesses, only applies in um, capital cases. The person can be put to death. In all other cases, a single witness could be good enough, and in some cases you can even use conjecture. And on top of that, there is another um, thing that can be used called a simon. Simon is a sign. So let's say you lose an object, and... So, and someone else has it. You say, that's mine. Well, they would say to you, provide a sign that it is yours, and then I will return it. And you have to provide a sign. You say, well, it has my name on the bottom, right. or there's a little scratch in the corner that I know of and no one else could know of. That would be considered a good enough sign to show that it's yours. This is the other form of evidence that's acceptable in Jewish law. Now, it won't be acceptable in capital cases, but it could be acceptable in a lot of other cases. And the question is, does blood tests and DNA evidence constitute a simon muvak? 
a good sign, a valuable evidentiary sign that could be used in a Jewish court of law. So we'll go back to the history of blood tests, which is in the early 1900s, I think it was 1903. Yes, sure. There was a... Um, yeah. The sages who said they did not move from there before a snake came and bit the murderer? Yeah. The person who committed the murder was then killed by a snake oh, okay. as a punishment from heaven, implying that God would make sure that the scales would be balanced. Okay. You know? So in the early 1900s, they discovered there was a man, I forgot his name. Whatever. Maybe it was. Who discovered that there are different types of blood types. There's uh, A, B, a, B, and O. And he won a Nobel Prize for his discoveries in this field. And they quickly realized that there are uh, genetic hereditary paths for these blood types. Some blood types can only give birth to other uh, that same blood type, depending on you know, both parents. So two O's will only make an O. A B cannot make an O child. It's all passed down, hereditary. So what that means is you now have a pretty good method of ascertaining whether a person is, in fact, a child of someone or not. So a father shows up and says, that child is not mine. I do not want to pay for whatever. I don't want, to, they don't want, me to, I don't, I don't want them to inherit me. And I'm going to take a blood test. And if you know, types don't match, that will be a sign that it's not my child. Now, this is not... We don't have the same, I'm an O, he's an A. Right, right, exactly. kids are split. Right, exactly. So what, in order for it to work, it worked in about 25% of the time, which is if you had two parents who you'd know what type they could. Almost all, like 75 or 80% of the return, the test returns were inconclusive, which is it could be. But the other 20, 25% said, well, it's impossible for this blood type to emerge from this union. It doesn't work. So the question then was, that's being used in secular courts. What is the Jewish courts going to say about this? Are they going to accept blood type testing or not? So our first source is from the Tzitz Eliezer. I mentioned him last week. Tzitz Eliezer was a chief rabbi in Israel in the early 1900s. And he wrote in response to this question. He said that in the Talmud... It says that there are three partners in man, the father, the mother, and God. The father gives the white from which come the bones and the sinews and the brain and the nails. And from the mother comes the red, which is the flesh and the hairs and the dark of the eye. That's what the Talmud says. And God gives the soul, the spirit. So he says, well... What color is blood? Blood is red. Red comes from the mother, not the father. And therefore, it's impossible to do paternity testing using blood. Okay, but some say. (laughs) This was his claim. Logical, but illogical. (laughs) (laughs) When, When did he write? Um, he, I, I don't know the exact date of this thing. It probably was around the 50s, I'm assuming. Okay. 
it, you know, the, the blood type discoveries were, were in the early, earlier 1900s, but when it became widespread of use, it was already 30s and 40s, so it was probably around 50s probably that he was answering this question. So he said it's impossible to uh, use blood type testing to ascertain paternity. Um, he says it's not considered any evidence at all. And then he brings an interesting story from the Sefer HaChazidim. Rav Sadia Gaon, which was one of the great Gaonim of the period right after the Talmud, he had a story with um, a child who they claimed that he was not actually descended from that person. He, you know, the child, they claimed he was a bastard and he should inherit. Um, and they took blood and they put it in a container. They took a bone of the deceased and they put it into the blood. And they tr- saw whether the bone absorbed the blood. And they saw that the bone absorbed the blood. And he said that is a sign that they are descended from the same person. Because the bone absorbed the blood. So now there's a big problem with this story is that it, scientifically it does not seem to work at all. The porousness and the absorbency of, of bones has very little to do with hereditary characteristics. But the idea seems important, which is that besides for witness testimony, you could use a scientific, or at least, you know, at least a pseudoscientific method of ascertaining paternity. Perfect. So he says it's true that that story occurred. However, there they used the bone. And the bone comes from the white. And therefore, that was where it could be used. But basic blood type matching is not good enough. Then he says, on top of that, in addition to that, blood type testing is just a estimation. That's what he says. It's not 100%. Even within, uh, you know, the, even if it shows up as being conclusively incorrect, uh, conclusively incompatible, that's not 100%. That's an estimation. And he says two points. He says, first of all, in and of itself, it's, a, it's an estimation. And second of all, all science is an estimation. Why? Because science is fallible, malleable, and changeable. Things change dramatically in scientific thought. It's often in very short periods of time. You know, Newtonian physics can be the only truth for hundreds of years and then be partially upended. So he says, therefore, all science is inherently fallible and cannot be used. Period. Any scientific process is just an estimation, and it does not have halachic power. So what he's saying is, number one, that blood types can't be used. He's also giving a general idea of the halachic view of science. Science is, is weak and inconsistent. Uh huh. <laughs> exactly. But, but the bone and blood story from earlier like worked. I don't, you know. That was a, a scientific process, apparently. So how could it be used? It's a good question. He doesn't address it at all. He also doesn't address the difference between forms of science. 
where there are um, theories and then there are facts. And they're often confused, which is you, if you can create a testable hypothesis and then isolate it, you will be able to, to create what's assumed to be a scientific fact. And those generally um, do not change. What changes are scientific theories. So classic example would be continental drift. Right? There was, there's earthquakes all over the world. What causes earthquakes? So in the late um, 1800s, the general assumption was that it was caused by the expanding and shrinking of the Earth's mantle. Expansion, shrinking, caused tension, and earthquakes. They already had the theory of tectonic plates and tectonic plate movement, but it was rejected out of hand. Why? They said the pieces of rock that you were proposing are so massive, there is no force that could move them. There's no way that it's possible. So it was re rejected entirely. And then in the early 1900s, they uh, figured out that a lot of the mantle is liquid, and will be, you know, there'll be convection currents. And they did the, the mathematical calculations of how much force could be generated by that amount of molten rock moving in a circular motion and figured out there is enough power to actually move huge plates on the crust. And once that, uh, once the methodology, once the, sorry, the means of movement arrived, then it became the norm. And now continental drift is in every textbook. Shrinking expansion of Earth, not. Now, neither of those are scientific facts. We put it in a textbook because we've got to teach something, I guess, and it makes a lot of sense, but it's very possible that we'll find out that it's entirely something else. We haven't isolated it. There is no way to isolate it in our current process. So that's the form of science that we would consider to be fallible. You know, if someone got up and he said, I will marry you on condition that tectonic plate movement is true. Well, we'd have a halakhic question about whether or not the person is married or not, and we would probably assume it's a, they're in a doubtful state. But if they said, uh, you know, I don't know, they gave a scientific, I, I, I um, marry you on condition that the temperature that water boils changes based on latitude and longitude, or elevation. Well, we, we know that that's true. We can test it. So there would be the scientific fact that would be incontrovertible versus the theory. And they're often blended. And because people push the theories so hard, it often takes away from both. But he doesn't differentiate at all, Sisley Ezer, in his, in his response. And to see why, it's important to look at the Nishmat Avram on the next page. Um, it's actually at the bottom, but we'll go back. So he says, I saw in the words of Rabbi Yeshua Ehrenberg, he was asked if they could use blood type testing to check whether, you know, the paternity of a child. And he wrote, I say, heaven forbid, they should never do such things among the Jewish people. This is not the path of the Holy Torah. As it, as it, we do not judge in our Torah and mitzvahs based on the wisdom of nature and medicine because their words are not believed. And if we would believe them, then heaven forbid Torah would no longer be from heaven. It would be from man. If we, give them, if we leave them and, and give them their strange miracles, is the way he puts it, um, and we use their estimations for other laws, uh, a lot of the other accepted halacha would be upended. 
We will not believe these Greek and Ishmaelite scholars, not their wisdoms, not their thought processes. And um, no matter what tests they use, there's all, it's always in doubt. There are many doubts that they don't even think about. Rabbi Yeshua Ehrenberg, another 19th century rabbi, early 19th century. As it says in the Talmud, I bring a proof from Torah and you bring a proof from fools. And this is how he ends his quote. And this was the accepted halachic view from the 50s till the 90s, pretty much. Blood type testing was rejected. Why? Because of this Talmudic statement about the color of blood and its source. And also, perhaps more importantly, or partially more importantly, that it reflected a general attitude towards science by the halachic authorities, which is if we let science in, our whole edifice will crumble. Science will destroy halacha. And they're all fallible humans who don't take enough things into account and they claim that things are 100% when they're really very doubtful. We can't trust anything they say. And then, DNA testing came out. Human Genome Project, 2000. And they mapped all the different parts of the DNA and they found that they can figure out paternity very easily from DNA because you will share exactly half of your DNA with your biological parent. So if we take two DNAs and if half of the DNA matches, half the chromosomes are exact, then we know this is a match, this is a child, this is exactly 100% going to be a father and a child. And the question came about again. We've rejected blood type testing. Can we now use DNA evidence? When? Yeah. Um, so the first steps of it came, I believe, in the 70s, and they already could do uh, matching already in the, in the late 70s, um, I guess, in, you know, but more specialized in laboratories. By the 80s already, the FBI started making a database of criminals and their DNA, um, and widespread use was uh, 90s and late 90s, I think. I knew it wasn't when I was a kid. Right. No. So the next case probably came, I don't know for sure because it doesn't say exactly, but it must have, um, must have, had, it must have happened in, in the late 80s probably. There was a story in Asia where um, every mother's nightmare. In the hospital, there were two children. They were taken to the nursery, and then they could not remember which child went to which parent. Nowadays, they have like 50 different methods, 50 different bracelets on the parent and the child. can't go anywhere to avoid the situation. But either something went wrong or they didn't have these safeguards in place. And there was now confusion. Which child belonged to who? And now they came to the Rav and they said, we have a lot of halakhic issues here. We've got marriage questions. Are you related to people? Do you know who you're related to? We've got inheritance questions. We've got yichud questions. Can you be in the same room as the person? But all sorts of different questions to deal with. What should we do? Can we use DNA testing to ascertain which child belongs to which parent? So, they asked this question to Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Oyerbach. And he said, um, He said, 
you should um, only use these, this evidence in addition to other forms of evidence. So he says it should, be, it should be part of a larger case. It should not be the only sole form of evidence. And that was what he said at the time. And then later, he wrote, Shlomo Zalman wrote, he said, however, if this test is now publicized and has been accepted throughout the entire world through myriads of tests which are clear and truthful and incontrovertible, then it makes sense that even from a halakhic perspective we can rely on these tests. End of statement. That's a biggie. That's a biggie. This book, the Nishmat Avram, was written by um, a man who was a student of the Tzitz Eliezer and Rav Shlomo Zalman Auerbach. And his work was looked over by the Tzitz Eliezer himself. So the same person who wrote vehemently against the use of blood type testing also accepted this statement, which is that since it's been publicly ascertained, we can rely on DNA evidence. Why the turnaround? Why the shift? What changed? DNA is really more reliable method. Yeah. Well, that's, a, yeah, that's a one argument, but I believe that the difference is, is negligible um, in, in terms of percentage. Um, in the 90s, they, they, they did you know, extensive testing to try to figure out what's the false positive rate with, with blood type testing. And if you had a, you know, the, the wrong type or incompatible type, then it was like 99.6% or something, which is well into what's halakhically considered a certainty. You know, and this is a general question is how much doubt is considered a doubt? And they usually say that less than one part in a thousand, less than one part in a hundred is usually considered um, good enough. But we do that even like a 160th or something, except for taste. Right, that's nullification within yeah, taste, I, yeah. I, I was gonna say, that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> I Yes. So it's, it's hard to argue. I mean, they did say that there was doubts and it wasn't certain, but it's hard to, it's hard to argue that the difference was that 4%. Well, I, mean, I guess the thing is, like, in the, with the blood testing, because you, there were, like, the cases were, like, it definitely didn't match. You could know very certain, but, like, because of like, whatever other cases. cases where you couldn't know for certain, that kind of makes, I don't know. So but would it, if, you come, if it comes back with inconclusive, then it's inconclusive. The question is, what right. happens if it comes back negative? Why can we not accept it? Right. And there are uh, two, I think, two answers to this question. The first one is, what is the use? What, in which scenario would this evidence be useful? So blood type testing can only accomplish one thing. If this person is actually, if this child is actually descended from this father, then you'll get back an inconclusive. If they are not, you'll get back Negative, not a match. So the only possible outcome is more bastard children. The only possible outcome. And now as a Rav, you have a question. There is this type of evidence, which if I let in, will only have one possible result. More bastard children. What is my job now? What should I be looking to do as a rabbi? Should my goal be let that evidence stand or not? And the moral answer is don't let it in. Why would you 
let in what is a question of what is not mentioned in halacha just in order to create more bastards. And Ramusha Feinstein wrote this. He said, that section of the Talmud can be reinterpreted in many different ways. It doesn't even mention blood. It just says red and white. I mean, it's not, it's not very clear at all. And, and there's sections all over the Talmud. We, every single one we take literally. We have a tested hypothesis here, 99.6%, and, and your, your counter-argument is that it doesn't fit exactly with the red and the white in the Talmud. So you're not reading the Talmud right, obviously. He says that that's, that section of the Talmud was brought in because we have a goal in mind. And the goal in mind is, don't let this evidence stand. DNA evidence is very different because it now has the option of ascertaining who the actual father is. And as we have in this case itself, we can now figure out which child goes to which. Perfect. But I want to point out that even in blood type testing, this blood type testing still might have been useful in the switched children example. Because if one ends up being not a match, you know that that's not a child. But in terms of percentages, how often will that be the use? And how often will the use be just paternity testing? which cannot create a positive answer. The other reason is because there was a drastic change in the perspective of halacha and science, which is before, Sisley Ezra said, nothing that the scientists say is ever considered evidence or proven, because it always changes over time. And then, 30 years later, Shlomo Zaman Auerbach writes, if it's been tested with clear, truthful tests, which again implies that such things are possible, then that's good enough. And this is a drastic shift in the way Halacha viewed science, which is can science provide clear answers, truthful answers? First view was no. They are strange Miracles who do not take into account all the possible issues and doubts. And then the shift to, well, we now have many clear, truthful tests. This is a shift in, in halacha itself. And I, my opinion, my theory, is that it's a shift in terms of fragility, which is the earlier halachic authorities came from a place of fragility, which is science is an enemy. There's no way that we can work together. If we let them in the door, then they'll burst through and take down the whole building. And then 30 years later, there is a much more of a sense of, of security and a position of strength, which is we, we can work this out together. Science is not inherently an enemy. It's not an antithesis to, of halacha. So if science says it, it does not mean that it must be rejected out of hand. I think they were right at the time. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of you know, militant science um, throughout different times of history. Um, we're, we're, I mean, we're not there yet. We still have p-value, p-hacking, and, and all sorts of other issues. Um, but we're getting closer. So then came, this was still an on-the-ropes type of thing. Should DNA evidence be accepted or not? Because it was individual cases. And, you know, a rabbi said an individual case. And then came the nail in the coffin, the, the final test, the universal test, which happened in 2001, September 11th. Twin Towers came down, and there were thousands and thousands of unidentifiable bodies. And women whose husbands were in the rubble, and the question was, can they remarry? 
There's no way to identify other than using DNA testing. Can we use DNA testing to allow all these women to be free to remarry? So the Chuvit Atzi B'tzamim was the guy who was tasked with making the answer. Now what happens in scenarios like this, which are huge cases, what happens is the rabbi who's, who the question is brought to will write an answer, and he sends it out to all the different rabbis to get their approval and approbation. And once he gets that, that becomes you know, usually pretty globally accepted. So this was going to be the test. Will this become normative? Standard halachic procedure. So he wrote a long, long answer where he dealt with all sorts of um, rebuttals and critiques of the DNA evidence, and he ruled that they could be used to identify the remains. And once that ruling came out with the approval of all the great rabbis at the time, it has again become standard now. So the normative standard for blood type testing was no, and the standard for DNA evidence is yes. So the Tshuva Atzibut Salman says a few things. He says, number one, a large section of the rejection of the blood type testing relied on that colorful Talmud section about the white and the red, and that just doesn't apply to DNA evidence. We can take it from any cell we want, so it's fine. On top of that, he says they've been proven accurate to incredibly low percentages. I mean, we've never had a false positive. And as much as you would argue that, oh, well, we haven't tested everybody yet, I mean, at this point, we got, we got it down way low enough for it to be a halakhically insignificant margin for error. On top of that, he points out something important, which is we already rely on fingerprints. Fingerprint testing had been accepted already. And then he, argued, he said one more thing, which is what if you have different incomplete DNA, each one individually is not good enough. You don't have enough information from any individual piece. But if you put them together to create a larger picture, you'll then have a match. Is that considered a ton of small, each one individually not good enough signs, or is it one large sign? And the halakhic difference is a lot of not good enough signs never together make a whole that is good enough. If you have a questionable sign and a questionable sign and a questionable sign, you can add in hundreds of those, thousands of those, they'll never complete one good sign halakhically. So as an incomplete DNA match, combined with another incomplete DNA match together, one sign or multiple signs? This is a very important question for what we'll go to next. And he ruled that they are considered a single sign. We combine them together to be a single form of evidence. So what does that mean? Like this. I don't understand what you just said. Right, so I'll explain a little bit further. Take the remains of a person, take the DNA. Uh, DNA. Now you have a DNA, but you don't know whose it is. You can't match it to the wife. Right? So who, how do we match? Well, the answer is we go to relatives. If we have a direct parent that we could look at, then we have a perfect sign. What if we don't have a parent? We don't have a child. All we have is a cousin. An individual cousin is not enough, going to be enough. You will see you know, a quarter of the DNA that's going to be similar, but it doesn't tell you if this, who this person is. It could be any of their cousins. It could be um, you know, many different people. So what you do is you take a cousin and another cousin, and a second cousin, and a third cousin, and you put them all together, and you say, well, it matches all these different people, and with all these different parts of the DNA matching, we can figure out that it must be within this exact family tree line to be a second cousin from this person, and a first cousin from this person, a third cousin from that person. So individually, each one of those match matches is not good enough. 
This DNA match, not good enough. This DNA match, not good enough. Can we create a family tree with all of them together to create a single evidentiary sign? Weren't they able to, or, or legally, couldn't they go and take a brush or a comb or a shaving uh, instrument, something that the person had used? Couldn't they take it from there? I, Good question. I see it on the television. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, I'm sure they could have. I'm sure they could have if they had, um, you know, a clear sign, if the person could go into their house and find what is for sure going to be theirs. But um, either that wasn't available or their collection methods were... I don't know exactly what the, what, what the causes were for them not having that availability, but for some reason, they did not. Okay. I, I mean, I would, yeah, that's what I would do first. And then the final question is, how far do we take DNA evidence? So the cold CV says, we're back to our same issue, which is, if we allow DNA evidence, that's going to cause more mamzerim. It's going to cause more bastard children. So we have, of course, allowed it because of all these important cases that we needed DNA evidence for. But what about the big looming issue? all those bastard children that we were trying specifically not to have problematic with the, DNA, with the blood type testing. So he argues that we should consider DNA evidence to be a doubtful sign. Why? Because a doubtful sign can be used to allow a woman to remarry, but it cannot be used to determine paternity. We are, in general, much more lenient with allowing women to remarry than anything else in halacha. We allow single witness testimony. We allow uh, conjecture testimony. We allow testimony from a relative, which we would never do in any other scenario. To allow women to remarry, the standards are much, much lower. If so, he says, well, let's, t- let's pretend, at least, that DNA evidence only hits the lower criteria. If we do that, then we'll solve our problem, because we'll only allow it in the scenarios that we want it to be allowed in, which is allowing remarriage, and not for the scenarios that we don't want it to be allowed in, which would be a certain, uh, you know, paternity testing. But the Koltzvi is not a, uh, you know, a decider of halacha, and his opinion has not been picked up at, to this point, at least. And currently, it's being accepted for paternity testing as well. So we are in the the pro, the, the, the we still do have the issue, which is the evidence does in fact cause more bastard children to be discovered, um, and we have decided that, that that's an acceptable loss. An acceptable outcome because of the positives. And here we again see that halacha is malleable. It has a goal in mind, which is we, there's so many different ways that you could view everything that in gray areas, the goal of every rub is to figure out what is the best thing for the community? What does the community need? And then figure out whether they can reach that goal within halacha or not. There is a compassion built in. It needs to be built in. You don't want a robot deciding halacha because they're missing the soul of halacha, which is the person that comes in to the rough. And this shift has to do with changing attitudes towards science, but also the changing cases. A case comes before a rabbi with two children, and the only way to figure out is DNA testing. He has to decide whether I'm going to say no to this scenario. So as long as the scenarios are all negative, the Rav has an easy, an easy answer to the question, which is my job is to look for reasons why not to accept it. But once cases come in where the goal should be to accept it, then he has to you know, make a 180 and switch it around. So that's the, the, the 
the, the shift in halacha in general had to do with the, its positive uses. Now we are going to move on to the next section, which is the right to privacy and DNA. There was a serial killer in, the Calif- in California in the 80s who committed rapes, crimes, murders. And he got away with it for you know, like 100 different crimes. It was like curfew because of it. Like people were scared to go out. And he was never caught. And then, after the uh, Human Genome Project and the mapping of the gene, it became much more possible for the average person to get a DNA test for themselves with a single swab of their mouth. And now private companies do it all the time. You know, you get a kit, swab, cheek, send it in. And there was an online site where you could find matches. You put in your DNA, whatever things you've got, and then they'll send you back matches. So there were cold case officers who took a rape kit from one of the rapes from the 80s, and they mapped the DNA, they tested the DNA, and then they stuck it in. And they found a fourth cousin, and a fifth cousin, and a second cousin, and a third cousin. And they narrowed it down to five different individuals and then did, you know, old-school investigative work about where they were at the time and whether they could be placed there. And they narrowed it down to just one. And 30 years after his crime spree, the man was arrested. A former police officer. Yeah. And he stopped committing crimes primarily because of the advent of DNA testing, where... He did not wish to be tested. And his, I think his DNA was in a database because he was a law enforcement officer. So he would have been matched. When did he let his DNA get out? <laughs> yeah, but I'm not sure. Um, either way, he could have just been frightened that it would eventually be caught. So he, you know, stopped. But ever since then, that's what's been happening. They're pulling out cold cases and using the same DNA testing. But the problem is, is that almost all DNA tests are currently in the domain of private companies. I say almost all, I mean like 90% or more. And they have a problem, which is that you have a right to privacy and they can't just share your DNA information with everybody. And it's DNA information is sensitive. It's a lot more sensitive than your fingerprints. It, will, it can tell a health insurance company what your risk of heart disease is. It can tell them you know, all sorts of things about you. So they have a, a, a big issue, right to privacy. So their original idea was we will only allow the police to access our databases for um, child abduction, murder, and rape. That's it. That was the line. And for a few years, that was what happened. And then there was a case of an old woman who was in her church and um, you know, an organist and she was violently, brutally attacked and left for dead but she miraculously survived and the police came and said this man's still on the loose and it was attempted murder she survived by a fluke, a miracle we should still be allowed to use the database to catch the person and the company said, okay. And they let the police use it, and the police used the DNA um, 
databases and actually caught the person. And there became a huge public outcry. So this is a slippery slope. You are deciding, based on your own code of moral ethics, when to break our confidentiality agreement. This is what you said, and you didn't follow it. How can we trust you? How can we trust you? So all the DNA, private DNA companies, shut down access entirely to the cops. And so they're using random websites. What they've started doing is an opt-in thing, where you, when you sign up, you have a box where you can click and say, yes, please share my information with the police. Otherwise, they assume that you do not wish for it to be shared. So the question is, in, from a halakhic perspective, um, what is the obligation of the company? What is the obligation of a person who gets approached and says, we are, it's possibly one of your relatives? And what is the obligation of a person who has that option of checking the box or not? Do they have an obligation to check that box or to not check that box? So, um, the first question is, does this, is, is there an obligation within halacha to not share any secrets? You have a secret, is it unshareable? So the Talmud and Yuma says, throughout the Torah, there always is the word laymor, which means to say. God says to Moses, laymor saying. So what does the word laymor mean? What, what's, what's its purpose? God said to Moses to say. So Rabbi Musya the Great said, from where is it derived with regard to one who explicitly tells another some matter that it is incumbent upon the latter not to say it to others until the former explicitly says to him, go and tell others, as is stated, and the Lord spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. So why did God say to Moses, saying? That word saying was permission to share, which implies that without that word, the assumption is you do not have permission to share. And therefore, anytime anyone tells you anything, automatically assume that it is private. Um, this section of the Talmud is not um, 100% the halacha. It's not, it's not accepted as the for sure, where you have to assume that. But it is um, brought in as a source for why perhaps you should believe in the right to privacy. Which is things are unshareable until you're explicitly told otherwise. That would mean that the company would be obligated to put a box in that you have to check. The company can't assume that you wish for your information to be shared with the police. They have to put a box on that says, yes, I want it, because otherwise there's no explicit permission to share. Which means that the original setup, I mean, the original setup also probably had a terms of service, privacy notice, but it had to be checked. You could not assume otherwise. And therefore, the company also can't assume that the average customer would want their information shared in another case that they didn't specifically, explicitly say that it should be shared for. So that's number one, right to privacy. Question two is Lashon Hara. There's a prohibition against saying bad things about other people, things that cause negative outcomes to other people. And then Chavitz Chaim, in his book, uh, Chavitz Chaim, he writes, he says that the for prohibition of speaking Lashon Hara um, is, even is in force when he does not identify when the person about whom he is speaking. Even if you don't say specifically who it's about, that's still a problem. But he says it in a way that it could be discovered who you were talking about from other characteristics. You don't say the name, but it's clear who you're talking about from other things. That is also Lashon Hara. More than that, even if it's nothing demeaning 
in the words of Lashon Hara itself. But it could cause harm to another, which uh, he intended by his deceit. That is also Lashon Hara. And here he is called, by Chazal, by the sages, Lashon Hara in private. So the, uh, the, uh, the standard of Lashon Hara would apply if it will cause someone else harm, even if it's indirect. So a person who puts their own DNA into the database is not just sharing their own DNA. They're sharing parts of the, both of their parents' DNA, their children's DNA, their siblings' DNA, their cousins' DNA. And the question is, are you sharing their secrets by giving that? And if it cause, could cause harm to another, is that, in a sense, Lashon Hara, where you're sharing things about other people, even if you're not intending to bear it to be demeaning, right? You're just sharing their DNA, but it could cause harm to another. Well, the answer to that is that it depends what it's used for. If your cousin is a murderer, you have an obligation to give them in. If your sibling is a murderer, you also have an obligation to give them in. Because there's a fear that they will do it again. So, in the current system of use, the way it's currently used for, you know, or at least the way it was used only for those extreme cases, then it would not be Lashon Hara to share your siblings and your relatives' DNA. Because you have an obligation to share the DNA for those cases. The question is, can we trust them? Well, for that, um, we are going to speak about the laws of Miser. We're going to skip a little bit because we don't have so much time left. Okay, so the last, last source that we got, actually the second last source. Um, the Shulchan Aruch in the Choshen Mishpat says, it's forbidden to inform on a Jew to a non-Jew, whether his body or his property. You're not allowed to go to the government and say, that guy is doing something wrong, and the government comes in. This applies even if the person is wicked and sinful. Can't tell the non-Jews on them. It's illegal. Even if he's hurting and harassing you, still not able to tell on them. And the Ramah says that's specifically for general matters, but if he's informing on you, then you could inform on him. In other words, if you were in direct danger, then you could inform on him. However, if there's another way to save yourself, then both of you are considered informers. You cannot inform the other person. Whoever causes more damage to the other would be liable to pay. Anyone who informs on another Jew to put them into the hands of the non-Jews, whether body or property, has no portion in the world to come. So. Heavy. But this I think referring to times when Jews lived in the pale. I mean the rabbis they people loved to get, have them put in jail so that they could be ransomed back out. You know. Exactly. And you are right. In fact, um, that's basically what happens. I mean yeah, in the in the times of the Talmud it says you were not allowed to take a haircut by a non Jew. Why? Because you were putting yourself in danger because they might kill you. You're putting yourself exposed to their razor. It is a very different time. And that's what the rabbis essentially say. So in the Shulchan Aruch, that was the halacha. But um, later on, people were asked about um, informing on... Uh, the rabbi Moshe Feinstein was asked about informing on abusive parents. A doctor um, had you know, a child come in with injuries that were clearly inflicted by the parent. And now the question is, can they call the authorities on them? So Ramosha Feinstein says, uh, for sure you can. And even about the issue of, well, you're informing on them and sending them to a court of non-Jews, he says, 
you can differentiate between, sorry, this is the Arach HaShulchan. He says you can differentiate between bar- barbarous civilizations and civilized ones. Um, and he says that the, the Arach HaShulchan says that when, when did they say that you can't tell a non That was within that, those like faraway countries where a person had no security in their body or their, or their money because of the, the corrupt and brutal governments. Uh, like as known in countries from Africa. However, the European kingdoms, that's not the case. And Rav Moshe Feinstein says we can prove that he wasn't just saying this because of a censor. This is an interesting point. He says every time a, a halachic authority speaks about the government, we have to take it with a grain of salt because maybe they're just putting it in because they know the censors will look through their works and if they find something wrong, you know. But we could prove that it wasn't just for the censor. Why? Because he says... He gives examples of countries that are civilized, and he gives his own country as an example, and he gives Britain as an example of a civilized country. Well, he had no obligation to say that Britain is a civilized country, and the censor is not going to take it out. You know, Britain wasn't exactly a friend of, of Poland at the time. So from the fact that he brought Britain in as an example of a civilized com- country, he meant that he wasn't just saying this to please the government, but he meant it literally that the Western powers are considered um, just systems where you can trust their code of law to achieve a, a proper result. So, a person who gives in in that scenario is not considered a miser. However, it's not as clear-cut as that. Um, there was a case in um, Philadelphia, I believe, um, sorry, Baltimore, where there was a kosher meat store. And the owner was discovered to have been buying non-kosher meat and repackaging it as kosher meat. And they were trying to figure out, what do we do now? Can we tell the government? Because, you know, it's serious fraud. I'll go to jail. Can we call the police on this man? Sir Moshe Feinstein writes, he said, you know, I heard about this evil man who, who was in the market selling non-kosher meat and pretending it was kosher. And the question is, should we tell the government on him? They'll find him and send him to prison? Or should the rabbis judge him? And he said, halachically, what's the punishment for such, a, for, for such a thing? Well, not prison. Financial? And not just financial, you would ban him from ever selling kosher meat again. But that's it. Prison is not a punishment that's prescribed for this type of thing in halach. So when you're telling them to the government you are going to cause them to punish him in a way that the Torah would not. And he says in that scenario, it does fall under the category of an informer who is informing another Jew. And therefore, you should deal with it within the, the, the Jewish court system. If you cannot stop him without invoking the secular authorities, then you can go to them. Because, you know, they don't have a lot of power, the Jewish courts. So how did so I don't actually know. I just read this, this case. I would assume that they did not go to the courts because I, you know, there's a pretty easy way to stop the guy from selling no yeah, meat, which is you just publicize it, you know? Yeah, and you know, you just make a big public statement about what happened. Right. I'm sure everyone will find out very quickly. It's a small Jewish world. So I'm assuming that they did not actually call the police on the guy. I'm assuming. But I don't know for sure because it doesn't have response. It just has his letters. They just collected Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's letters. They don't give you all about it. You have to guess what happened next. Um, so now this is 
pretty much where halacha stands on informing, which is if you can assume that the, um, the, that the judgment that they will get mirrors or is similar to um, the halachic punishment, then, that's good. then you can inform, you can call the police. However, if you will assume that they will give a different punishment, a worse punishment, then you have to go to the Jewish courts only, unless you can't stop the person. Um, you would not purposely inform, but the bottom line is that we just don't do those types of punishments. So okay. almost any scenario where one of those punishments is going to be applicable, you're not going to, you know, the basin's not going to do anything anyway. There was a, 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 a meeting of all this, the Israeli courts, Sanhedrin, so the, the Israeli Jewish courts, and um, basins, whatever, and they, they said, we do not judge criminal cases, period. Um, you know, any physical criminal cases, they don't judge. So it doesn't really apply that that wouldn't be the case. And in that case, I mean, you'd still wouldn't, you know, you would still probably not, you'd probably still send it to the Jewish court if, if you had to, if they could. Anyway. Who's uh, Rabbi Feinstein now? I mean, Bad news, there, there isn't one. Um, there, but we've had before him. And yeah, I mean, this is what, I mean, throughout pretty much all of history until the 2000s, there were the people, the chief rabbis who had that level of authority, but there really aren't anymore. Um, there's maybe one in Israel, Rabbi Yashiv, who's, you know, who's pretty good, um, but there really isn't a central authority that everyone would, would point to and say that's, you know. Yeah, but within certain groups, there certainly are rabbis. That right. Can... Within certain groups, but even within certain groups, it's, there's very few even within certain groups. Really? Even within Chabad, there isn't one. Yeah, I mean, what's, what makes a great rav is bravery, or, or as, some, as I like to say, the, the, the willingness to go to hell for all of us, which is if something is wrong, he's the one responsible. Not every rav is willing to say, I'm going to say that this is okay, and if I'm wrong, it's going to be my fault. Yeah, people sent things to him that they didn't want to respond to themselves. You know, they didn't want to have to deal, have that responsibility. So they sent it to him. You know, I once asked Rabbi Elon from uh, Jacob about something I didn't quite understand. I, I never could understand how you could sell your hummus to a gentile and keep it in your house. I, it didn't make sense to me. So he said that God gave us a brain. Gave us a brain to figure these things out, and if it was able, like with a wheelchair for Shabbat, they figured it out how they could do it. Where a person who's observant can use a wheelchair and not feel bad about it. Yeah, and that's why we got a mind instead of just a robot. Yeah, he was a great mind. Yeah, pretty smart guy. Anyway, so back to the DNA evidence case. So we clearly see that informing to the secular government is not going to be an issue with DNA pretty much unless it is for crimes that are non-criminal. Which is if, if the police would expand it to, I don't know, shoplifting. 
or even armed, even even you know robbery, you'd have a real problem because the the Torah does not prescribe prison for robbery. The Torah only prescribes monetary repayment, double, double monetary repayment. And you could argue and say, well, we don't have the power to stop thieves, so therefore we couldn't form on them. Um, and that's you know possibly the case, but there are a host of of things that could be brought to the court. I mean, actually, thievery could be brought to a base and they can impose a monetary fine. They can impose a monetary fine. So if they ever expanded the use of DNA, it would pose real problems. And then they, this is the question the halacha cannot answer, which is how far do we trust these companies to keep our DNA private? If they do as they're saying, then there's no issue. If not, then there is a big worry that we are informing on a lot of other Jews. If it's ever sold to a health insurance company, right. it will be all our fault. Yeah. And no Rav can answer this question. No Rav is going to be able to tell you what the doubt is, what the fear and worry is. Yeah. And definitely not me. I'm definitely not the person who can tell you. Just know that this is a, an issue that, that maybe someone will deal with it someday. At this point... Um, no Rav has ever come out and said that you cannot do DNA tests and share it, um, which to me implies that there's a general trust of these institutions. And hopefully it's... Yeah, hopefully it's well-placed trust. But it, it, it's soon going to become irrelevant. It's at, soon there's going to be enough DNA in the databases to map every person on the planet. You don't need that many. With like 30 million people, you can get every American. And so if you get 100 million, you could get most of the world. In terms of like relatives? Yeah, we, yeah, meaning you have enough close relatives to map everybody for any DNA match that we get. We did it because we wanted to find out a 